peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to extend a special welcome today to the Grays, Chris and Sonia and their family. Hope you'll meet them if you haven't already. And uh, their family is long established in our church, part of the Gray dynasty that we have here. And uh, they've been doing mission work for a number of years. So make acquaintance with them. How was your Christmas week? Here's how ours started out. Mary and I woke up on Sunday morning to the smell of a skunk in our house. And I opened the front door, whoo! So we looked back on our front security camera to see what happened during the night. About 3.45 a.m., three raccoons were in our front yard, and they encountered a skunk. And uh, let's just say that the skunk used his instinct to uh, handle the matter. And the last thing we saw were the uh, raccoons going over a wall with a skunk kind of teasing them from behind. That's how our Christmas week started out. Santa Claus. Well, it kind of goes through three stages. First, you believe in Santa Claus, then you don't believe in Santa Claus, and then you look like Santa Claus. <laughs> All right, take your outline sheet, please, and if you have a Bible in one form or another, we're going to go to the book of Revelation, but we're going to start in chapter 1 before we look at chapters 21 and 22. Revelation chapter 1. I had a little birthday gift of attending uh, a concert, our favorite foursome singers, Il Devo, and they sang the song that goes clear back to Wizard of Oz that says, uh, uh, someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me, where troubles melt like lemon drops away among the chimney tops, above the chimney tops, that's where you'll find me, over the rainbow. It's a very innocent song. And it points to a, a desire to have a better tomorrow. And this is a true human yearning that tomorrow might be better than today. Everyone yearns for a better tomorrow. And in this election year, we especially see this when candidates try to go out of their way to promise things to you, the promise of a better tomorrow. Uh, when politicians promise a better tomorrow, there's two big problems with that. One is it might be the, not to be the tomorrow that you desire or that I desire. It's what they envision. And uh, the politician also has his or her whole way of making sure that the better tomorrow will be mandatory. And you're going to have to pay for it, whether you like it or not. You're going to have to go along with it. I, I heard a politician recently say, we will establish an advanced society. Here in America, an advanced society. Now that is ominous, if you know your history over the last hundred years or so. So every time... A movement has come along and done an advanced society. It has brought pain and suffering to so many people. It does not measure up to what it promises. certainly doesn't measure up to what the Word of God promises for an advanced society. Uh, it doesn't allow religious freedom. It doesn't allow opposition. The Bible speaks in Revelation 20 about a millennium, the kingdom of God on earth. That's an advanced society. But you also see in the book of Revelation that the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God are often in sharp contrast and conflict with one another. Very different visions of an advanced society. Continue on in your outline. Man can only achieve so much and easily forgets the will of God. Would it be correct to say we kind of want a Garden of Eden but with full access to the forbidden fruit. Perhaps that characterizes our quest. 
We look at the Bible's promise for an advanced society this morning, but it, but it won't be what you find in the book of Revelation called Babylon, a society that's governed by the Antichrist, that is morally lawless, that is commercially godless. No, not that kind of advanced society. Much, much better. Now, if you, haven't, if you didn't hear Pastor Tim speak last week, be sure that you go online and listen to the sermon that he brought from the first half of Revelation, especially chapters 4 and 5. Uh, I will say that Tim stole some of my thunder, but I'm happy that in the book of Revelation, there's lots and lots of thunder to go around. The book of Revelation takes us through the turmoil and trials of life and leads us to a better tomorrow, an eternal city. Now, here's some things to understand as you read this book. The book of Revelation has lots of symbolism and drama. It's like watching the Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings where there's all this symbolism going on. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, it's not so much what it means. It just kind of adds to the drama. So don't get too dogmatic over the details. Revelation depicts heaven and earth as places of conflict between good and evil. The present times are tough. It may look like evil is winning, but God still rules and his, schedule, his, his plan is right on schedule. What are you to do? What am I to do? Stay strong, resist evil, keep the faith, because judgment day is coming with reward to the overcomer. We want to be overcomers. Now, when it comes to understanding the book of Revelation, the interpretations are all over the place. Martin Luther said, many have tried their hand at it. Some have brewed into it many stupid things out of their own heads. And uh, he's kind of a prophet on that for the teachings that have come along, at least in my lifetime. Um, I caution us not to be too dogmatic once again about details in this book. The main themes are clear. The world is evil. It's in contrast to the kingdom of God. Stay firm. Be an overcomer. Judgment day is coming. Jesus will return, and there will be a new Jerusalem for us if we are faithful. We won't always agree on how to interpret this book, but we should at least keep this in mind. Be sure to keep this in mind. The book of Revelation was written to seven existing churches the late part of the first century, it had great significance to first century Christians facing severe testings. Any interpretation of the book that does not see it through the eyes of these believers is suspect. So don't accept some interpretation that just comes along that Christians never thought of before. Like in the book of Revelation, one of the plagues, the, the, uh, talks about some beings that have long hair and metal chests, and some say, that's acid rock music. <laughs> or black helicopters somewhere or something like that. This book had special meaning in the first century, and, and whatever chapter 13 means when it says the mark of the beast is 666, and don't get it on your forehead and don't get it on your, on your hand, it meant something to the first Christians. And the important thing we need to see today is are there ways that Christians are being punished commercially because says if you don't have 666 on your forehead, you cannot buy or sell. Are, are Christians in our own day being punished commercially sometimes in their earning power because of stands that they take for Jesus? That's our concern. Those are the people we need to pray for and help. One, one great way to look at the book of Revelation is to see it as a book of worship, and I really encourage this. We call it doxological approach. It's a book of worship to the glory of God. And I've given you several texts there that are worship themes. We're going to start with one right in the first chapter. Verse 4, 
John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So right at the beginning, we have an invocation, an invocation of praise to the Trinity. And then right following that is something you won't find in church, a benediction. Imagine opening prayer, closing prayer, God bless you. It won't, but here it's followed by a benediction. To him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then the Lord God says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and was and is to come the Almighty. Remember that. God the Father, the Lord God is saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. But uh, you don't usually find a benediction following an invocation. An invocation's at the beginning, the benediction's at the end. I'm a police chaplain, and uh, once the chief was having a meeting years and years ago, and after he opened the meeting, he said, now the chaplain's going to come and give the benediction. And I'm trying to keep from laughing, because you don't laugh at the chief, but uh, I was giving the invocation. I wasn't telling everybody, now you can leave, <laughs> right at the very beginning. Notice how the book of Revelation influences our worship even today. Chapters 4 and 5 that Tim talked about last week give to us heavenly worship, a beautiful scene of heavenly worship. It starts with a gospel quartet. And second, the elders sing. How many of you think our elders of the church ought to get up here and sing some Sunday? Say amen. amen. Come on now, say amen. amen. Yeah, all right. They got it. They got it. And after the elders sing... There's a great angelic chorus followed by all of creation singing. It's, it's the biggest sing-along you have ever seen. Here's what this quartet sings, and I think you'll recognize it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Didn't we just sing those words? And then the elder chorus sings, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. There's a praise chorus that comes from that. I invite you to sing it if you know it. Thou art worthy, thou art worthy, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, glory and honor, Glory and honor and power, for thou hast created, hast all things created, thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are created, thou art worthy, O Lord. See the influence of this on our worship. And then all the angels join in worship. And they sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Mary and I got a very special gift of my birthday. We went to Seekerstrom Auditorium in Costa Mesa and we heard Handel's Messiah. Orchestra, soloist, chorale, and this great song followed by the great amen concludes that majestic piece one of the greatest compositions of the, of the Christian era. Uh, Tim told us last Sunday that 
these words, worthy is the lamb to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength, was a direct challenge to Caesar who was demanding this worship to himself. We don't think of that when we sing it. We have religious freedom. We don't fear persecution when we sing this song. But the early Christians were throwing down the challenge there, putting their lives even at risk. When I was in college, and I'll date myself a little bit, Fidel Castro hadn't been around very long in Cuba. And I had a classmate who was from Cuba, and I invited him to speak to our 20th Century Affairs Club once. And he said, some Christians think that in Cuba... If you'll just teach the gospel, the government will leave you alone. But he said, try speaking on the second coming of Christ in Cuba and see what happens. See what happens. Chapter 5, verse 13. To him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever. Now that's in Handel's Messiah. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. But we also have a praise chorus. Do you know it? Let's try. To him who, <laughs> to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. To him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and power forever. Sorry about the tenor range for that. It's a good chorus. And then chapter 11, verse 15. The kingdom of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And what comes from that? The Hallelujah Chorus. Now, so Book of Revelation directs us in worship. Likewise, we should use, see the description of our final home as an inducement to worship God. What will our final home be like? Here are four of its features. So on three, turn the page. One, two, three. Preachers like to hear that sound. There's another sound we don't like too much. It's when everybody clicks or pins. Come on, it's over. Be done. <laughs> All right, feature number one, a city of unbroken harmony. What makes the Jerusalem above a city of unbroken harmony? It's because of what is there and what is not there. What's there? God is present with his people. 21, verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You know the longing of God has always been to dwell with his people, whether in the tabernacle or in the temple. And where might we find the dwelling of God today? It's in the gathering of believers. You want to find a dwelling of God? Go to church. And where believers are gathered in his name, their God is present with them by his spirit because the church is the temple of God right now. And, and we just celebrated Christmas and we, we pondered the mystery of the incarnation that Jesus became flesh and dwelled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten God, full of grace and truth. God dwelled with his people through Jesus. But in the New Jerusalem, there will be a fullness of God's presence with his people 
such as never before. Because you see, through the death of Christ, we've been reconciled to God by his blood, and we can now be in harmony with him. And Jerusalem will be the great experience of that. Now, also, what's not there? All death and pain and tears and evil are absent. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Verse 4 has very special meaning to me this month because September, October, November, and December have been months of death. Eight deaths somewhat close by and some serious illness. Aunt Sally called from Ohio in August and said, I'm dying of kidney failure. And she said, when I pass, would you prepare a message that could be played at my funeral? Yeah. Three weeks later, we got the call that Aunt Sally had passed. And so Mary and I did something very unique. We Skyped a memorial service to those gathered at the funeral in Ohio. The funeral home said, it's the first of this is for us. And this was the first for us. Maybe we'll start a new trend here. I don't know. But I, I hope if the minister's in the same town, he won't Skype the service. But if you're 2,500 miles away, maybe it makes sense. Do you know the name Jared Wilson? Well-known pastor at Harvest Church where Greg Laurie is pastor. He had a ministry to people with struggling with suicide thoughts. He took his own life in September. And what brought that home is that he's a very close friend of my daughter and her family. And last July, they had all camped out at Mammoth. But Jared Wilson is gone. We traveled to Ohio in October to visit Mary's brother and my brother because they were both struggling with some real health issues. Two church members passed away, Trudy in her sleep and Chris briefly with a bout of cancer. Do you know the name Keith Wells, longtime worship pastor at Bethany Church in Long Beach? He was at another church, and they were having his retirement service, and he felt a sharp pain, and within a few weeks, he was dead of pancreatic cancer. As I prepared to leave home for Trudy's memorial service, on August 26, my next-door neighbor suddenly died, unexpectedly. Mary's brother died on, on November 17, so we were back in Ohio for his funeral. And one more, a well-known Seal Beach community leader and a good personal friend of mine, Seth Eker, Seth, Eker, Seth Eker, died suddenly on December 18 at the, at the low age of 46. God, this is enough for one year and then for some time to come, please. But we as Christians yearn for a better tomorrow. Back in my teenage years, I learned a little chorus, and it's been one of my favorites ever since. There'll be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness, no more pain, no more parting over there, and forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. Now there's one more thing absent from this city, evil. Satan's in the lake of fire. And those who 
confirm themselves in evil and practice evil in their lives, join him there, verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, have you ever told a lie? Or maybe a string of lies? I have good news for you. Uh, Repentance is there for all sinners, but if we confirm ourselves in evil and reject God's repentance, there are the consequences for us. And the point of the verse here is, none of this sin enters God's city, although God still invites everyone to turn to him and come to him. Here's the second feature. It's a city of unparalleled beauty. Unparalleled beauty. It's a brilliant city, and its brilliance speaks glory. Chapter 21, verse 9. Pick it up at verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And in verse 21, we're told, the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Now, how much of that is literal? How much of that is symbolic? I'll go there and I'll let you know. I don't know right now. Many of these descriptions are descriptions of unparalleled glory that we cannot comprehend, so it's put into words that we can comprehend. But the holy city honors God with great brilliance, and the holy city also, at the same time, meets the deepest needs of humanity as we honor God. Its gates, what do they say? Grace, grace. These gates, according to verse 21, are giant pearls. You've heard of the pearly gates? Uh, No, it's gates of pearl. One solid pearl, each of them. And you say, that's amazing. Well, the oyster was amazing too. (laughs) I would not want to meet that man-eating oyster. It's going to give me a nightmare. Giant pearls. Verses 12 and 13, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates, 12 angels, to make sure that wrong doesn't come in. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. A police officer said once, we need high walls and big, wide gates. How well have you done on that? Churches and countries sometimes... uh, don't open their gates very wide. Churches might have a little gate open in a certain direction from which they want to attract people because they already like those people, but a gate this way and that way and that way, well, we're not so sure we want those people in the church. We hope they become Christians and we'll recommend a church to them somewhere, but uh, we don't have a gate open to you. Our country has had problems with gates. We had an east gate called Ellis Island that for decades received millions of people in the country and almost everyone who came got in. And we got a good north gate and the west gate, well, we want the Chinese to come and build our railroads and do the dangerous work and then go home. And if the Japanese become citizens, well, we're going to lock you up for the course of the war. The south gate's a problem too. The gospel breaks down all the barriers and opens wide the gates and says, from every direction, whoever will may come. And the names of the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
reminding us that God has not forgotten his promise to Israel. We would expect to see names of donors on those gates, wouldn't we? But no, 12 tribes of Israel. The foundations speak truth. Truth. Every foundation has a precious jewel. You read those in 19 to 21, many jewels, which uh, lo and behold have names hard to pronounce. But in verse 14 we're told, the walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them there were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The early Christians continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, Acts 2.42. And it is the apostles whom Jesus taught and whom he called and appointed to bring to the church the meaning of who Jesus is and the doctrines that the church would hold. And so every true church is founded on the apostles. We base our teaching on him. If we depart from that foundation, we're not a true church any longer. The foundation speaks truth. And then the dimensions speak perfection. We're told in verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and the gates and the walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, which is about 1,500 miles. Now it runs from about Ensenada to British Columbia and from where we are to Kansas City. Do you think everyone who wills can come? A lot of room for those people. But here's the fascinating thing. Uh, the next verse, the rest of the verse says, the length and the width and the height are equal. 1,500 miles high, be higher than almost all of our satellites. And uh, maybe this is a caution not to take everything literally, but the point is the city's a perfect cube, and that speaks perfection. In the Old Testament, the most holy place in the tabernacle and the temple were perfect cubes where God dwelled, speaking of perfection. Feature number three, a city of unimaginable glory and security. There's no temple there because God is its temple. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city for the temple of the Lord God, the Almighty. The temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. God is with his people and dwelling in the midst of his people, if you want to see the temple, you go to him. No more literal temple. No sun or moon, because God is its light. Now, I don't know what's going to come of the sun or moon, but the point is, the brilliance of God outshines everything else. The brilliance of God illumines the city. And it tells us in verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its, lamb, its, light, its lamp is the lamb, and by its light will the nations walk. No fear in this city. And the gates are open only. To what is good. I can remember when you didn't lock churches anywhere and people could come in at any day, any hour. You think we do that anymore? No, unfortunately. Well, this city has its gates always open, but only what is good can come in. Verse 25, and the gates will never be shut by day, be no night there. Verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it or anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Imagine a city with no crime, a city where you can walk the streets without fear. You never need to lock a door. You don't need cameras. They hack those anyway. 
and you don't need law enforcement. That will be a city where all the inhabitants are perfected saints. Now, I didn't say all saints because you fill the city with saints today, you're still going to need the cops. But in that day, perfected saints require no, they have total security, total freedom from fear. And now feature number four. It's a city of unending bounty. Unending bounty. There's a bounty of life, abundant life for all. Starting in chapter 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Perhaps this speaks of Jesus. Because Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling into eternal life. Jesus is there with abundant life. It's a place of abundant health. The passage continues, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding the fruit every month, the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Our bodies fail today because of the curse, but in that day the curse will be lifted and we'll be being glorified bodies and we yearn for this. And then last, abundant service or abundant worship. You can translate the word either way. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Hey, if you don't like worship, don't go to the New Jerusalem. You won't like it there. But I would rather that you looked upon our worship here today as preparation for the worship that we will do in the New Jerusalem. Two closing thoughts one is Jesus is coming again, and he's coming soon. You say, well, didn't he tell them in the first century he was coming soon? Yeah, but today is, today is more sooner. And three times in chapter 22, we are told that Jesus is coming soon. Verse 7, I am coming soon. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me. And verse 20, surely I am coming soon. And the church responds, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus, come soon. And finally, you have the opportunity to receive eternal life and come into this glorious center, this glorious city. Verse 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's bow our heads together. And my prayer would be that if there is anyone here this morning who has not yet come to Jesus, that you think about doing it as the service closes and as the year comes to a close. What a great way to celebrate the end of one year and the start of a new one, to invite Jesus Christ into your life. He is the living water that gives you eternal life. And you can do that by simply saying, Jesus, I confess you as my Lord and Savior. I receive you into my life. Forgive me my sin. Give me the gift of eternal life that I might be a member someday of that great city. Consider making that kind of a commitment right now that you might become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Lord, thank you for all you've taught us. In Jesus' name, amen.